Welcome, tennis fans, to KickServeRadio.com, part of the Tennis Channel Podcast Network, featuring former world number one and seven-time Grand Slam champion Matt Spielander, former Texas Longhorn, two-time All-American Johnny Levine, and your host of KickServeRadio.com, Andy Zoden. KickServeRadio.com is presented to you by SquadPod, committed to protecting your privacy and your business. Communicate safely with SquadPod. And Bracket, spelled B-R-A-C-K-I-T, an interactive mobile game where being aligned with celebrities and athletes has a nice payoff for you and charity. Take it away, AZ. And take it from here, I will. Andy Zoden here, kickserveradio.com tonight for Pete's sake. This is all about Pete Sampras, U.S. Open. We're going to talk a little bit about what's going on in the world of tennis aside from that, but this is mostly going to be all Pete all the time. First things first, though, we do want to thank the good folks at Bracket and Squad Pod uh, for their participation with kickserveradio.com. Welcome to our show, you guys. So great to have you all a part of the proceedings. As you know, we are a part of the Tennis Channel Podcast Network and, of course, very proud of that as well. A couple of the things that have been going on uh, in the world of tennis lately that we'll get to, the tournament in Lexington, had Venus and Serena Williams play each other for the 31st time in that storied career between those two sisters. And I believe Serena had to come back to get the win over Venus. It was a very good match. Venus Williams playing very good tennis. She had taken care of Victoria Azarenka in the first round. So what a draw for her to have to play two former number ones in the first two rounds of Lexington, finally losing to her sister. And Coco Goff is still going good. And she is on her way to the top of the women's game. It's just going to be a matter of time before we see her ascend to the top of that mountain. We feel certain the team at kickserveradio.com are the great Mats Vlander, seven-time major champion, former number one in the world. Mats, how you doing? I'm doing good, Andy. Thank you. It's great to be with you again. And we're going to be talking Pete Sampras with Johnny Levine as well, former Texas Longhorn All-American. How are you doing? I think you're spending some time right now in Aspen, Colorado, where it's a little cooler than where you normally are in Phoenix, Arizona. It is cooler. However, as you know, in Denver, you've seen some fires uh, from a distance, and we're close to them here, so it actually got pretty hot today, but I'm happy to be in Aspen. Great show tonight. We've got a lot to get to. We're going to be doing the debut of something that we're starting called Tennis Across America, where we're going to be visiting with folks that are listeners of the show that play tennis at all levels in all parts of the country, and tonight we're going to hear from a very nice couple who reside in Annapolis, Maryland, who won a big tournament in Delaware over the weekend. So you'll be hearing from Bill and Michelle Regal a little bit later in the show. We're going to be joined by Steve Flink a little bit later in the show. And he is the author of a book that's going to be released September 1st called Pete Sampras, Greatness Revisited, hence for Pete's sake, because we're going to be talking a lot about Pete tonight. And the first thing that I want to start with, Johnny, is the fact that you know what it's like to get out there you played three years of college tennis and to go out and to scratch and claw for every win you can possibly get on the tour. They're all tough to come by. And it was no different for Pete Sampras. This was no Mats Wielander winning the French Open at 17 type of situation. This guy had to go out there and take his lumps early in his career. People think of Pete and they go, wow, 14 majors, one of the best players of all time, possibly the best American player of all time. But it wasn't so easy right out of the gate, was it? No, it wasn't, Andy. Pete turned pro at the age of 16, and, uh, you know, the first year, first couple years were pretty tough. He did break into the top 100 pretty quickly. However, in 89, I was looking at some of his results, and he had really got beat badly by uh, Chang three times, and and Chang beat him one and one, and, you know, straight sets every time. He lost to Machir 0 and 1. He lost to Pernforce 2 and 2. He had some really, really tough losses, and it just shows that, that transition from from coming from whether it's you know for him it was a junior believe it or not to college or or just coming out and being your first couple years on tour no matter how great you are it's going to be a it, it's going to take some time and when you think of Pete Sampras having geez seven Wimbledon's and five U.S. Opens and adding a couple of Australians and thinking about a year where he got beat zero and one by Machir. He got beat two and one by Agassi. I know it was Clay on that one in Rome, but uh, Chang one and one. It's really incredible to think back that a guy of this stature 
started out his career with losses like that. Um, but that just shows the difficulty, um, the transition into the professional ranks. And uh, when Pete came out, you know, he was also a late bloomer. I mean, he was not quite highly t- as touted as uh, Courier and Chang and, and uh, a couple of those other guys. But he certainly made, made an impact because uh, he won the Open in 1990 and beat, beat Agassi. So it didn't take him too long. And it would be a night match at the U.S. Open where he really caught my attention. I hate to do this to you, Matt Svilander, but it was against you at in Armstrong Stadium where Pete Sampras, someone that, as Johnny said, had taken some lumps, had jumped into the top 100. We'd seen some highs. We'd seen some lows. We'd seen some potential from him. I, I know that, that his handlers and coaches and his team – uh, was very optimistic about uh, about the prospects of him doing well as a professional, and it would be against you in Armstrong Stadium in 1989, where we would really see a fir- the first glimpse of the greatness of what would eventually be a 14 major winner in Pete Sampras. Yeah, Andy, thanks for bringing that up. Um, <laughs> that was probably my. Uh, the start of my fall from the top ranks. Obviously, I was defending, uh, defending champion at the U.S. Open 1989, and uh, we played. It was pretty windy. Uh, I had seen Pete uh, around the locker rooms at the Madison Square Garden, actually, at the, the Masters in those days, and he was there practicing with uh, Ivan Lendl, and, but I didn't really pay notice to him. I didn't realize he was as young as, uh, as he was. He looked a little bit older, um, pretty early in his life I would say Pete Sampras but but it was you know it was one of those matches where I did not and I've got to be honest I I was not playing well I did not feel like like really being there I wasn't into it and the only reason I really I took him I think to five was because I I was so stubborn that I can't lose to this guy who doesn't have a backhand in those days he has a pretty good serve Pete was skinny in those days. His forehand has always been good, heavy. And I remember the serve being pretty good, but I just could not figure out how I'm losing to somebody who's not keeping the ball in play on the backhand side more than he did. So anyway, so he goes on. Of course, he beats me. And I go back to the, to the uh, locker room in the press conference, and they ask me, the American tennis writers, uh, ask me what I thought, one of the upcoming prospects. And, and, I'm, and I obviously, it's not a good question to ask the defending champion. So I said, well, I wasn't that impressed, actually. Uh, having said that, having lost to him, I uh, shot myself in the foot a little bit. But I said, I wasn't really that impressed. I thought, you can't really play tennis like that. you got to keep the ball in play. And, of course, Boris Becker had come on the scene about four years before, and he played a little bit of that style tennis where he didn't really pay attention to his opponent. And Pete Sampras was that player early on where he had a bit, pretty big serve, um, didn't really want to rally that much. And, and it was hard to be impressed by Pete Sampras, especially as I had just played Andre uh, in 88 in the semis of the French Open. And the difference between the two there, in my mind, was was humongous. Uh, and, uh, I mean, I was so wrong. Uh, I was a bit upset, but I was really wrong in predicting um, the future he was going to have. And, and to my defense, he grew really strong and stocky and and uh, he figured out how to use his serve uh, in a much better way than I think any other player ever. So his body language and his tactical skills grew through the roof more so than than any player I can think of, really. So let's talk about that U.S. Open crowd. And the U.S. Open is coming up, and Pete had tremendous success. Johnny, you mentioned that uh, that he won the thing five times, and and you had the opportunity to play a defending champ. Uh, I believe it was in the grandstand when you played Lendl. And a lot of times those New York crowds really get behind an American player and sort of give a little bit more wind underneath the wings of a player like who Sampras would have been at the time or in maybe your case. I don't know if you felt like that that American crowd got behind you against Lendl. Could you see maybe the American crowd having lifted Pete up to a higher level than maybe what he had played and maybe Matt's feeling the burden of expectation of being a guy that had won three majors the year before and all of a sudden the expectations are high on him to continue to replicate those results? Absolutely. I mean, I, I think that the American tennis fans were waiting for – some new champions, you know, it was McEnroe and Connors that are, 
that basically were at the helm and they were on their way out. Um, and so we were looking for, for some new blood, new great champions that could win slams. And all of a sudden, uh, you know, you've got Agassi and you've got Sampras coming onto the scene, even Chang, who had won the French at 17, and Courier, obviously winning slams. But, but I think Pete Sampras, you know, winning that U.S. Open, uh, Chang didn't win the Open, Courier didn't win the Open, Agassi did later on. But I think when, when Sampras beat Agassi in that final, that was 90, right, uh, right. Andy? I just think it was, a star was born, and when you and, and and Sampras was different than Connors and McEnroe. He's more laid back. He was reserve guy. I think people appreciated the fact that you know he was he you know he just did his thing on the court. He had that humongous serve, huge forehand, and I just think that he brought such a great new uh, identity to to American tennis with with the way he was playing. I mean, he just was not you know, like a Connors or a McEnroe, he just, all his talking was done with his game. And um, it was exciting to, to, to have him come onto the scene at that time. So Mass, we talked about the fact that, yes, he wins in 90. The burden of becoming this, as Johnny said, a star is born. And, and Pete felt it and felt a bit uneasy about it. It would be 93 Wimbledon before he would win another major. He would lose to your buddy Stefan Edberg the following year after winning his first U.S. Open. First of all, did you feel the crowd behind him the night you played him in 89? And then secondly, do you kind of understand what he was going through having won the French at 17 and then what those expectations are like and, and what you're now viewed as you're an international superstar and how daunting that can be to try to you know get comfortable with all of that? Yeah, you know, I don't remember the crowd being a big factor. I think I was living in Greenwich, Connecticut uh, in those days, and I had a lot of friends that come to all my matches sitting in the box, and I got tickets up in the stands. So, uh, and, and believe me, a night match, Louis Armstrong, with even though it was me and Pete Sampras, it was not full. So the American tennis fan likes to wander a bit at night. So I don't necessarily feel that the crowd that time, but but I think that... I think what's interesting for me seeing Pete early on is that I think it's fair to say that somebody like Agassi had a way more modern game. Like he really changed the way tennis was played more so than I think people give him respect for because he's the first guy to stand on the baseline, not backing up and just ripping the ball. And that's how I felt when I played him the first couple of times. With Pete, it was more, oh, okay, American, big serve, big forehand. Remember, Pete Sampras was not a, a natural servant volleyer. I think people, because he won Wimbledon uh, seven times, we think of him as a servant volleyer. Pete Sampras is not a servant volleyer. He chose to come in after his serve because he has such a big serve, and the volleys were pretty easy. When you talk about a servant volley, you talk about John McEnroe, Stefan Edberg, Pat Cash, Pat Rafter, and Pete is not in that same um, category he was unbelievably good at it but I feel like Pete early on had a big serve and a big forehand and liked to play from the baseline a little bit and somehow somebody must have gotten to him I think the help of a huge serve when he got stronger realizing that I'm not going to stick at the baseline with these guys I'm not either good enough or which I think is what happened he realized that I'm giving these guys too much rhythm in their service game so I think he decided that I'm holding serve very easily at all times. I'm not giving you any rhythm. I would nearly bet that Pete Sampras won more matches on tour with one service break per set than any other multiple Grand Slam champion. He won, you know, four all, no problem against Pete Sampras. You can hold serve easy. And then suddenly he decides to play a little bit. And you haven't hit a proper shot from the baseline because you can't touch his serve. So I think that's been overlooked with Pete. I think I would take Rafael Nadal to play if my life depended on it because I know he is a great big match player. Second or maybe tied first, I would take Pete Sampras because that serve was not going to go anywhere away from him and he would figure out how to destroy the rhythm of his opponent. Old comments by Matt Vielander putting him up there with Rafael Nadal as the guy that he would put his life on uh, if he had one match that needed to be won. Matt's just made the comment that he was living in Greenwich, Connecticut at the time that he played Pete Sampras, but now he's living in Haley, Idaho. And let's hear a little bit more about that before we go to break. And then when we come back, 
Was Pete Sampras a boring player? Let's take that one on. Nestled in the spectacular Sun Valley area in Haley, Idaho, Matt's V-Lander Tennis allows athletes like you and me to train inside so that we can excel outside. Former number one and seven-time, yep, that's right, seven-time Grand Slam champion Matt Spielander now owns Gravity Tennis and Fitness. And let me tell you, Gravity is the premier fitness and tennis club in the Sun Valley area. They have it all, including indoor tennis, lots of high-quality training equipment in a clean and bright, spacious workout area. They have yoga and Pilates, as well as hydro options. They also have martial arts and something I had never seen before, TRX suspension training. But most importantly, let's talk about the tennis. You will be trained by one of the all-time greats in the sport of tennis. Time on court with mats is an amazing experience, one I assure you you will never forget. After my clinic with mats, every time I step on the court, I hear that focused intensity in that charming Swedish accent reminding me of all the techniques that improve my game and get results. So grab your family, your friends, or the whole tennis team and head out to Haley, Idaho for a tennis experience of a lifetime. Go to MattsVLanderTennis.com to find out what's in store for you when you get to Gravity Fitness and Tennis in beautiful Haley, Idaho. Bracket, spelled B-R-A-C-K-I-T, is an interactive mobile game that you have got to check out. Bracket features celebrities, athletes, and other major influencers discussing their favorite topics in a bracket-style competition where users can win big if they can guess the celebrity's picks. Another cool component is that Bracket features all of the celebrities, athletes, and influencers discussing their favorite charities on every show. So go to Bracket.com. Remember, it's B-R-A-C-K-I-T.com, where everybody wins. Bracket.com. Tonight is the debut of a new feature on KickServeRadio.com, Tennis Across America, and we're showcasing players of all levels from coast to coast. And tonight, uh, from Annapolis, Maryland, we've got Bill and Michelle Regal, who just won a tournament this past weekend, a doubles championship at Bayside Resort Golf Club in beautiful Selbyville, Delaware. Bill and Michelle, welcome to KickServeRadio.com's Tennis Across America. How are you? Great. Good. Thanks for having us. My good friend, Marty Godwin, is the pro that put the event on. And speaking of tennis across America, I worked with Marty in Houston. He was at the Riviera Country Club out in L.A. working with the likes of Ron Hightower. Now you guys have got him back close to his roots in Delaware. Now, let me ask you a question, because the spouse thing I always find to be a little bit of a tricky proposition. But, Bill, I'm looking at you here on the Zoom call. You look like an intelligent guy. I'm assuming you just take instructions and do what you're told, as do I. I'm very smart. I let her have everything. And she takes care of business out there. So tonight, the show that we're doing, as I mentioned to you guys before we went on air, is called For Pete's Sake. And it's all about Pete Sampras. And on September 1st, a new book is going to be released called Pete Sampras, Greatness Revisited, uh, and that's written by one of the great tennis authors uh, in the country, and that is Steve Flink. And we're all talking about Pete tonight, so why don't we let you guys have that same opportunity? You guys have been watching and following and playing tennis for so long. What are your memories of probably the greatest American player of all time? Sure. I mean, I remember watching him and the big rivalry between him and Agassi especially, and I remember that 1990 U.S. Open where he came on and he beat uh, not only Agassi in the final, but he beat a number of other really high-profile players to win the championship. And um, he was always very gracious and a, a very um, great player, great um, sportsmanship. Gentleman Pete, they referred to him as very often, so I concur with your assessment. And before I let you guys go, and I want to thank you so much for taking the time to join us while you're in the process of getting ready to move a child off to college. How do you feel about that? I mean, there's just so much going on with respect to parents feeling a little bit queasy about kids going off to college right now. Do you feel like that's a safer environment than for her to stay home? What are your thoughts? 
Uh, she's been preparing for this for so long that I feel like she needs to go and experience whatever it's going to be this year. There's this fear that maybe we'll be going back in a couple of weeks to get her, but we hope not. We hope yeah. that it's a safe environment. She's smart and they, they're, they're, they're doing things the way they should be. What is her name? Maya. Maya, we wish you the best of luck uh, in the volunteer state at the University of Tennessee. Bill and Michelle Regal, thank you guys so much for joining us on our first Tennis Across America on KickServeRadio.com with myself, Matt Svilander, and Johnny Levine. Thanks to Marty Godwin for setting up. You guys have got a great pro there at Bayside Resort Golf Club. I know I don't have to tell you that. He's a great guy. Marty, thank you so much for the support, and uh, hopefully good luck to you guys defending your title next year, and congratulations again. Thank you. Thank you. And Marty is great, and Bayside is great, and all the folks that we played against that day were, were just so nice and it was just an awesome day okay as promised we are back and we are going to talk about something that pete sampras was oftentimes accused of being which was a boring player match you've even described yourself that way at times which i know johnny and i scoff at the thought of whether you were a boring player watching a guy win multiple majors is never boring to me watching pete do it was never boring for for me to watch. It was just that compared to a charismatic rock star like Andre Agassi, he was a little bit more within himself. He was a little bit uh, less, you know, uh, prone to sort of showing out and 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 being a guy that wanted to draw attention to himself. Uh, and and he's still that way to this day, as we know. Uh, but that does not make him a boring player. And I'm going to point to three matches in particular where we saw tremendous emotion from Pete, one of which was the Karecha match in 1996. Pete ends up vomiting on the court. You guys must remember that one. And Alex Karecha gave Pete all that he could handle that year in 1996. It would go to a fifth set tiebreak. Pete would win that tiebreak. I don't know. I think he escaped from, you know, by the skin of his teeth, eight, six and a fifth set breaker. Matt, what do you remember about that match and Pete getting sick on the court? Yeah, that was unbelievable. Uh, I'm pretty uh, close with Alex Karecha. We we worked together on uh, Eurosport during the majors. Uh, and uh, he double faulted, actually, on match point Karecha. He choked it, and Pete was, was kind of creeping up to, close to the service line and kind of forcing a double fault. But let's go back to the Pete Sampras being boring. I think he was reserved uh, in his body language, coming you know, behind McEnroe and Jimmy Connors and then Andre Agassi and then suddenly Pete. And, and yes, there were matches. I think we watched Pete Sampras. And if he didn't play a quality opponent, there were times when, when he didn't have any rallies in his own service games. But that's not his fault. Remember one finals he played against Goran Ivanisevic at Wimbledon. The ball traveled less on average than two times over the net. So that's a serve and a missed return on average. So those matches, depending on the, the opponent, I guess you could, if you love long rallies, say that. But Pete Sampras' style of tennis, Pistol Pete, to me, is so perfect. He always said he lets his racket do the talking, nothing else. So I don't think so. He's played so many great matches. I think the best match that I've ever seen um, at the U.S. Open was actually him and uh, Andre Agassi. And I think it was... The quarterfinals uh, of the last time he won the Open, I think it was sort of 7-5, 7-6, 7-5 or something. It was just incredible. So, no, I don't think Pete Sampras was boring. I think we have Roger Federer because of Pete Sampras. And I think Roger Federer's behavior on court is, is it boring? No, because his tennis is so incredible. But his behavior on court is kind of, Body language-wise, a little bit dull compared to Nadal or Jimmy Connors. But I think you got to give these guys respect when they are not trying to intimidate anybody, either on the court or umpires or fans. They're just letting the racket do the talking. So I, I could not think of anybody, anything being further from the truth than Pete Sampras being a boring tennis player. Well, just to be clear now, Pete's last U.S. Open win was actually over Andre in the final – but the match that it sounds like you're talking about might have been a quarterfinal where it was like seven six six seven seven six seven six. Was it the night where Andre was wearing black and Pete was wearing white? 
and it was just a, it was just an absolute contrast in styles. It was one of the great night matches in the history of the U.S. Open. Another incredibly emotional match, Johnny, that I'll ask you about was when Pete was, would win his 13th major and break the record and uh, sort of untie himself with, with Roy Emerson. And, and being a kid that was, was crying at eight years old because his father wasn't on the court with him, this was the only time that Pete's parents were actually on the premises and in the stands to watch their son play a Wimbledon final would be when he would win his 13th major and beat Patrick Rafter in that final. How incredibly emotional was that, particularly with what you had gone through with your father at age eight? <laughs> well, I forgot to tell you, Andy, you know, when I cried in that one match and wanted my dad on the court, I left out the part where when I got to the finals of Kalamazoo in the 18s and, and the, the tradition there is that the parents, one of the parents, the dad usually comes on the court with the finalists and the winner and they speak. And I told my dad, you're not coming on this court. Why? So I went a long way from my, okay. have, wanting my dad on to not wanting him on at my final junior tennis match. So I had to throw that in there. Okay, fine. But, but, but as far as that, that Wimbledon final uh, against Rafter, you know, what, what was so incredible about that, when you really think about the fact that his parents never came to any of the matches, which was kind of cool in a sense that Pete just did it on his own. I mean, he had one coach, great, but he didn't need his parents there. Um, and I'm not saying that's a bad thing. I, I just, it's just unique. And so the fact that they came to watch him break the record and it happened and that they were there, I mean, how emotional is that? How great of a story is that? So that was really, really something special uh, to see his parents there. I, I know that must have been just an amazing feeling for Pete Sampras. I, I got to jump in here, guys, because my, uh, my mom has been to America quite a few times, but my dad only came to America once. 1988 U.S. Open, and uh, he was sitting wow. in the players' box in those days, and I'm going to uh, name drop a bit. In those days, I was hanging out a little bit at times with Keith Richards, and oh, my dad yeah. would sit in the players' box next to Keith Richards, and I would just pinch myself. I'm like, what is going on? This is a crazy life. How can they be uh, sitting watching me play tennis? So I think it's so special to the point where it was so special, I think, for me, and I'm only saying this because I think Pete must probably experience the same thing. What can get better than having your parents watch you break a record or, for me, become world number one? Where do you go from that? Me, I went downhill fast. I never <laughs> won anything. And nothing ever seemed to, to, to uh, match up to, to having them there. And I'm wondering... With Pete as well, you know, he, he kind of went out of the way pretty early for, uh, for the kind of style of tennis, even though I think he was 31 when he won his last major. Now we see with Federer that Pete most probably could have played for another five, six years and won a couple more majors, but was probably lost some motivation. I don't know. To me personally, I think that parents can be helpful for sure. But I think we have m way more tragic situations with parents being there too much uh, than uh, the tragedy that is that the parents are never there. You spoke about the fact that he kind of did it with one coach, Johnny, and that leads me to maybe the most emotional match we ever saw from Pete Sampras the most human side of him we ever saw. Pete Sampras and Jim Currier were facing off in the 1995 quarterfinal, and the match was an absolute epic. Currier had taken the first two sets, and Sampras had clawed his way back to two apiece and was serving. What happened next baffled the millions watching and commentators alike. I think Sampras is in trouble. It would only become clear after the match that Sampras suffered an emotional breakdown on court triggered by the illness of his coach, Tim Gallickson, who had just been diagnosed with cancer that would ultimately claim his life. The defending champion appeared to be a beaten man and on his way out of the tournament when he broke down in tears and returned blubbering to his chair. Remarkably, Courier offered to finish the match the following day. 
but Sampras declined and capped off a dramatic comeback to claim a thrilling five-set victory. 6-7, 6-7, 6-3, 6-4, 6-3. He's got it. Jim Courier really became more of a friend than an opponent. I, I gained a lot of respect. We all did for Jim Courier, the way he tried to diffuse that situation and sort of help Pete sort of relax and, and, and calm him through that. Well, you better believe that Tim Gollickson uh, from the hospital would have told Pete, listen, you go in there and you fight. Because I cannot imagine that Pete would have wanted to play that match if it was his choice, the way that he uh, appeared uh, in the match. Uh, I would say that he, please take me out of here. I want to be with Tim at the, uh, in the hospital. So I think that was, um, take my hat off to Tim Gullickson. Uh, he you know, was a good friend of mine. We, we used to go out quite a bit together and have quite a few beers uh, in the European uh, sort of circuit. So what a great guy. And I think most probably we haven't talked enough about what Tim Gullickson meant for Pete Sampras. Paul Anacone came after that, and I think Paul Anacone deserves all the credit in the world for being a great coach and a commentator uh, and have coached Roger Federer even. But, but I think Tim Gullickson, I think that we really, really should find out what Tim did uh, to Pete to turn him into a, such a killer on the court when we nearly thought that he was lacking a little bit of that killer instinct. So just a very, very emotional, and I think... Jim Courier grew in my eyes, but Pete Sampras, more than anything, showed that he's human to uh, not just American tennis fans, but to all of us. And then, as Matt says, Johnny, it would go from Tim Gullickson, who really did do such an, an incredible job. And, and we've all stayed friendly with Tom Gullickson over the years and watched his Davis Cup captaincy. And the Gullickson brothers will forever be etched in in, uh, in their spot in, in American tennis history. Of course, it was Tom Gullickson that was on the court with McEnroe during the famous You Cannot Be Serious match at Wimbledon. But your friend since juniors and a competitor of yours, Paul Anacone, would come onto the scene. Yeah, I, I, you know, Paul, I think, came at the right time. Obviously, it, it was sad what happened with Gullickson, and Pete was super close to him, was having tremendous results with him. And I think Paul, when he stepped in, you know, his his goal was to maintain what Pete was doing and, you know, improve some of the things that, that, that Paul could bring to him, which is, you know, maybe the Servali game and things like that, because Paul was a genius at that. But Paul, I think also was was just a, a great voice of reason and and that's how Paul is and I think that he was a real stable person for Pete especially after what happened with his coach and so I think the relationship that they developed was incredible I know they became you know great friends and uh, to this day they're really close friends so Paul did a wonderful job and then I think I think Paul did end up at one point leaving Pete, but then to come back and, and coach him to his final slam victory was uh, icing on the cake for both of them. Before we close out this segment, Matt, so I want to ask you this question because in looking at Pete's career, there's an area where I think you could compare something favorably from his career to yours. And you might have to, uh, you might have to work with me to connect the dots here, but you were the, one of only two players to win multiple majors on all three different surfaces. So you won on, on grass at least twice, on hard courts at least twice, and on clay at least twice. And even though you didn't get the Wimbledon title, you got the two grass courts, the two grass court titles in Australia. Pete never won a French Open championship, and as a result, he's considered to be a guy that couldn't play on clay. But would it be fair to say that the heroics of the 1995 Davis Cup final in Moscow – going out there and, 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 and beating Chesnikov and winning the doubles match with Todd Martin and then coming back, he was carried off the court. And then to have to play Evgeny Kofelnikov in the decider in Moscow and to go out there, Andre Agassi is hurt, he can't play a match, and Pete's got to go out there, put the American team on his back to win that Davis Cup title, and he does it? How much credit does he get for having had some, some sort of clay court resume? Oh, huge uh, huge. Obviously, he knew how to play on every surface. And I think in a Davis Cup situation, I think when you're not uh, 100% sure of what your tactics should be on a specific surface, I think it really helps to have a captain to talk to in the changeovers. And that clarifies uh, a little bit of what, what Pete needed to do on a clay court. And I think you're stuck 
at the French Open, five sets on the Philippe Chatrier court. There's no help in sight, and you're out there for three to five hours. I feel like Pete on the clay didn't... I think he tried to play clay court tennis, where I think it would have been more dangerous would he have played a similar game there um, as he did at Wimbledon and on hard courts, where you know, used to serve, come forwards, keep the rallies short. But I felt like with his backhand on clay, uh, he was trying to sort of stay in rallies. And again, I go back to what I said before. Pete Sampras, really, I think people need to sort of look back at him. He was a baseliner from the beginning. So was Stefan Edberg was a baseliner from the beginning. And they just happened to realize somehow, and that's where the credit goes out to the two of them, they happened to realize that, that they enjoyed coming forwards more than they did maybe from the baseline. But to actually change their style that drastically was difficult for Pete, I think, on a clay court. So I think he could have done much better uh, if he would have sort of tried to play that same pistol Pete tennis that we saw on the other surfaces. But still, huge credit. Played Davis Cup. That final was amazing. So he obviously knew what he was doing on the clay court. You're listening to... For Pete's sake, and that's why we're talking so much about Pete Sampras tonight on KickServeRadio.com. We are part of Tennis Channel Podcast Network, and when we come back, we are going to be hearing from Steve Flink, and he is author of The Greatest Tennis Matches of All Time, and he is about to release another book called Pete Sampras, Greatness Revisited, and you're going to love this book. Steve Flink joins us on KickServeRadio.com for the final segment right after this, so do not go away. How often do we hear news stories about tech giants violating and restricting access to ideas and philosophies that they don't agree with? That's why you should choose SquadPod. SquadPod is a private communication team. It is a collaboration platform for businesses, schools, nonprofits, and athletes. SquadPod has all the important features of other communication, chat, and video apps, but it's 100% unique in its commitment to protecting your privacy and your business. SquadPod doesn't monitor or censor any of your conversations. They don't create customer profiles or use any of your content for AI training or facial recognition. They don't sell or share any of your information with anyone. SquadPod is 100% made, stored, and operated in the United States. So join us and visit squadpod.com forward slash kickserve to learn much more. We're joined by United States Professional Tennis Association Chief Operating Officer Fred Biancos. Fred, 2020 has been a tough year for tennis pros, but they have an opportunity because of what's going on with USPTA and USTA to get their dues paid for. Talk us through that program. It has been a tough year, but um, in our cooperation and working with USTA, um, we're going to be able to offer free dues for members in good standing for 2021. And to be in good standing means that you have to have your dues paid up for 2020. And then to be safe play compliant, which is includes the, the background screening to make uh, all of our pros the, the safest possible for the uh, tennis playing public. And then also be current with your education. So uh, if you can manage to do all that before October 1st, which is the deadline, then you will have free dues for the 2021 uh, calendar year. Although there won't be a live world conference in New Orleans as it was planned for September, there will be a virtual world conference. It looks like a great alternative. It looks like you guys are playing it safe and being responsible. Talk a little bit about that as well. Yeah, unfortunately, we're, we, you know, we had to cancel the, the live uh, conference for September, but we found a really cool platform where we can have a virtual conference. It'll be just like attending a normal conference. So it's pretty exciting stuff. We're going to have a top-notch list of presenters and experts. We're planning to have 15 sessions throughout the three days on September 21st through the 23rd and have it be really interactive and, and a, a pretty cool experience. Some pretty good swag and some good motivation to register early. 99 bucks, 79 if you're safe play compliant, correct? Yes, correct. We have two deadlines, October 1st for the free dues to be safe play compliant, and then also uh, December 31st 
in order to be able to rejoin and be a member in good standing come 2021. He's Fred Viancos. He's Chief Operating Officer of the United States Professional Tennis Association. Freddie, thanks so much for all you do, and thanks for joining us here on KickServeRadio.com today. Thanks, AZ. Welcome back, everybody. KickServeRadio.com for Pete's sake tonight on KickServe Radio. And as we mentioned earlier, a new book is coming out on September 1st called Pete Sampras Greatness Revisited. Its author, Steve Flink, authored the greatest tennis matches of all time. You see his work to this day on Tennis Channel. Steve, welcome back to KickServeRadio.com and congratulations. The book's great. Thank you, Andy. It's good to be back with you and your, your great trio. Thank you so much. We're uh, we're having a good time, and we're having a good time talking about the career of Pete Sampras. What an enjoyable project this must have been. I mean, such a target-rich environment, revisiting the great moments of a 14-time Grand Slam winner. Talk about the project and just the enjoyment that you had collaborating with Pete on all of it. It was really enjoyable. It started in the fall of eighteen was the first couple of interviews. And then I had, you know, I did a couple hours then, and another three, four hours in December. And it moved on from there. And then, meanwhile, I started getting to the likes of Rafter and even Isovich and the man uh, that sits with you in the studio tonight, Mr. Vlander, and so on down the line, Billie Jean King, Martina Navratilova. I interviewed about 23, 24 people, including Novak Djokovic. And I think their comments I loved gathering their comments and seeing what they had to say and then going back to Pete and saying, well, Rafter said this and even Isovich said that. And, and not not to be provocative because it was so laudatory what they everybody was saying, but just to get his reaction to what everyone else was expressing. It, it, it was it was great fun. All this went on between the fall of 18 and la, and last fall, a period of about a little over a year, about a year. Steve, what's the uh, common denominator? What did they all agree on uh, when it came to Pete, apart from, of course, maybe the best serve of all time in the men's game, the, the mentality or, or body language, so psycho- psychologically, what did they agree on with Pete? They all seem to feel that he could have done well in this era, match. They all seem to feel like he was such a transcendent athlete. You're right. Everybody talked about the serve, but they talked about the athleticism. They talked about the mentality, the champion's mentality, how unshakable he was as a competitor. And and what I found interesting, Matt, was you'd go to you'd hear Todd Martin describe the '94 Australian final, or you'd hear even Isvich talking about the Wimbledon final that year or the one four years later, and you'd keep hearing players explaining what went wrong from their standpoint. But they all had this this uh, deep admiration for the way Pete handled himself on those occasions. They knew he was not going to give it to them. And hence a 14 and four record in those major finals, no accident. Steve, I was going to ask you if you ever talked to him about, you know, the longevity of players now winning slams later in their careers, you know, well into their thirties, if he ever had any regrets about retiring early. I was just curious if you ever had that kind of a conversation. Well, Johnny, I, I did in a sense. I, I was more so about how surprised he was by what they achieved more than th- that they played on deep into their 30s. But he did say that I think he felt that by that stage, by 31, he was he was spent. It, it was, a, as you know, uh, he, you know, he'd gone through a couple of very difficult years from Wimbledon 2000 all the way to the U.S. Open of 02, having not won a tournament. 33 tournaments he played in that span. And, and yet he had been in the finals of the U.S. Open the previous two years. He'd been knocking on the door. But he, I think, felt that he had nothing left to give. I think what was great about the decision, though, was he wanted to be sure. I think there were thoughts right after the Open about, do I really want to continue? But he then, he just... First, he decided not to play the rest of that year. Then he started pulling out of tournaments the next year. But he waited until he was absolutely ready and then left. But it's a good point. And, but as you know, Johnny, the, look at Edberg, look at Becker, look at the guys of that generation. With the exception of Agassi, who wasted some years in his 20s, most of them tended to retire. 30 was sort of that magic point, that pivotal point where you sort of felt like you, you, it, was, it was the right time to leave. Steve, 
the the chapter that I really enjoyed was on Pete Sampras's legacy, and I loved what John McEnroe said. And I sort of saw this quote with with maybe having two meanings, and that was, in his opinion, a that you had to consider Sampras among the top five players of all time, along with obviously the top three that we've been discussing and Rod Laver. But he called Pete Sampras the best fast court player ever, which makes me wonder if a he's saying he's the best Wimbledon champion that we've ever had, Roger Federer included, or that B, if he was to try to compete now in the era of somewhat slowed down courts and baseline tennis, he might not have translated as well. Yeah, I don't know. It's it's tough to interpret. I can see why you interpreted it that way, Andy. My my read on it was that when he started, and McEnroe started going into these imaginary matchups against these guys, and I think he felt like Pete even on – even said, well, obviously slower courts might favor Djokovic, but that Sampras would beat him some of the time on the slower courts too. And then he speculated about what it would be like to, for Rafa to play uh, Pete on grass. And he said, so are we talking about the old grass that Pete and I played on or the newer grass that they're playing on now? But that was a very pointed comment to say he was the best fast court player of all time. In turn, Matt's talked about how in his generation, he played so many great Grand Slam final, so many great big matches, you said, Mats. And in turn, you also mentioned that, you know, at that time, he was the man. He was the favorite. He was the guy you looked to in those big matches to come through in a way that we've seen in recent years was true of Novak Djokovic. Because Pete, head-to-head, had the clear edge over Agassi, Courier, Chang, Becker, Edberg, you name it. He beat them all. Nobody, none of his really most significant rivals had an edge on him. He... He beat them, and he beat them when it mattered the most. Steve, why do you think it took Pete? I mean, literally, he yes, he won the Open in 1990, but Chang won the French in 89. Uh, Agassi and Jim Courier, I mean, they were ahead of Pete uh, going into early in the 90s. What? First of all, I know that his, his body transformed, but, but did you have any feeling of what, what Pete himself thought that changed so drastically from being sort of a, a pushover mentally and, you know, skinny guy, big serve. Yes. But is he a big man? What happened there? Does he think himself? Well, I think he felt that he went through the inevitable growing pains, Matt's after the 90 open, naturally winning it and becoming the youngest ever at 19 years, 28 days at number 12 seed that year. He wasn't quite prepared for that in his mind. And then he had, he, he had to sort of adjust to that status. By 92, I think he was almost there. And that's what changed it, is losing to your countryman, Edberg, in the finals of the U.S. Open. He was very disappointed in himself. Even though he didn't look that way on the court to many of us, it was a four-set final, and Edberg came from behind, and Sampras at one set all served for the third set and didn't close it, and Stefan won in four. But he was very distressed with himself, Sampras. He's, he felt that was the match that just changed everything. He couldn't tolerate that loss in the way that he felt it happened, which was to sort of give in. He didn't give up. I guess you could make the distinction. He gave in a little. He didn't totally give up. But that wasn't good enough for him. And that's what changed him permanently as a, as a competitor. Steve, the match with Roger Federer, none of us would have realized what a passing of the torch at Wimbledon that would end up being. Roger, I believe, is, what, 19 years of age, beats Pete on center court, an amazing return to serve to close out that match in the fifth set. What kind of conversation did you have about that with Pete, about sort of the relevance of that match in both of their careers? We didn't talk about it so much in that context, other than that, he, you know, he, he was very impressed with the way Roger played that day and, and the amount of serving and volleying that Roger did, how he was a different player then. We talked more, I guess, later on uh, about their exhibitions later, and he felt very comfortable on the court with Roger. He made a point of saying that as, as much as he lauded all three of those guys, but in the case of Federer, he played a bunch of exhibitions in 07 and into 08 in Madison Square Garden, although he only won one of the four. And he, he served for the match in Madison Square Garden. He was in most of these matches. And he felt very comfortable stylistically against uh, Rogers' game. Interestingly, he seemed to feel like Djokovic was the one that might have been the toughest matchup because he was such a great returner and he had such a great reach on the return that it would have been, uh, you know, and he was a better athlete than Agassi. So he had 
he had interesting things to say about them, but we didn't go into the too much depth about the Wimbledon 01 match other than that, you know, he, he was very impressed with Roger's poise that day. You know, one of the things we haven't really mentioned about Pete Sampras's greatest strength is probably the best second serve in the history of the game. Um, and I don't know if, if you had conversations with him about that, but, but thinking about um, the big moments in, in, in the big matches and the slam finals and this, this second serve that got him out of so much trouble and how he went for it was just mind-boggling when you watched it. Did you guys ever talk about that? Absolutely, we did, Johnny. And he said that, you know, he felt that it got better and better as his career went on. He, he thought that it was even better that guys were more intimidated by that than they even were by his forehand. And obviously, we know what a great running forehand he had. But he felt the second serve demoralized a lot of opponents. And obviously, he talked about that and others like Courier about the fact that he had two first serves. Maybe it wasn't really a second serve. And I think the thing that happened later on that I noticed was as he served and volleyed more in the latter stages of his career, he also got bigger and bigger on the second serve. And he didn't worry about a few double faults. And I'll never forget Agassi saying once after losing to Pete in Cincinnati, he says, well, I broke him one time when he decided to serve a few double faults, meaning I didn't do anything. I had no say in the matter. He happened to hit a couple of double faults two inches long on a, on a few points to lose his serve once, and that was the only way I could break him. So, yes, we absolutely talked about that. He was very proud of, the, of what his second serve became. To me, it obscured how great the first serve was, though, because, I mean, yes, it wasn't, he wasn't going to have the MPHs of a, a Philip Pousses or a Rosetsky or some of those guys, but he didn't care. It was, it was so deadly accurate on that, and I think, to me, it's the package of the two. The package of the two, there's never been anything quite like it, a first and second serve combination like that. Let me ask you, you three uh, um, American citizens a question about, about Pete. Obviously, in general, you root for your countryman named Stan Smith or Arthur Ashe. <laughs> Uh, sure. gentlemen and then suddenly we have Jimmy Connors come up and John McEnroe and now you're an American and you're supposed to root for the American player uh, and you don't have to necessarily individually say if you did or didn't uh, and then you have Andre Agassi come out and he's play we played in the semis of the French Open and he's 18 years old and it starts raining and he goes and grabs an umbrella from one of the sponsor boxes and it comes out onto the court and me personally I was like, what are you doing? You're a little teenager yeah. thing, and you're coming out here, and you, you try to make fun of what is a very serious situation, okay, and you're going to pay for it. And he did, and I won in, <laughs> in five sets because he cramped. Even though I was running, uh, he actually started cramping in the end. Then comes Pete Sampras. So where do you, as Americans, put the, uh, Pete Sampras in terms of really, really, really rooting for an American who – on the outside, seems to be a great guy. We know on the inside, uh, he's a very nice guy. I don't know him that well. Whereas with McEnroe and Connors and maybe Andre Agassi a little bit on the outside, hmm, sometimes you would go, whoa, whoa, I don't know if I'm going to root for John McEnroe or Jimmy Connors with what he just called the umpire or his opponent. Where does Pete and Steve, I'll give it to you first, where does Pete sit? Such a great question, Matt. I think the three you mentioned, Agassi, Connors, McEnroe, all can be viewed as anti-heroes in a way. I mean, they, they were not exemplary in the sportsmanship department, and they had their rough edges and very contentious, both John and Jimmy. Phenomenal competitors, but very contentious. And Andre was a showman to the point where he could get you aggravated like that. I don't think that many guys did that to you, Matt, but that was obviously insulting. Pete was the ultimate sportsman. And I think that, that uh, you, you even said it in the book that, you know, his, he didn't try to win popularity contests is what you told me. And I couldn't agree more. But he comported himself impeccably on the court. And so I think traditionalists, traditional sports fans, those that really valued sportsmanship, had a more appreciation for him than the trio you just mentioned, the, the, the honor that he brought to the profession. And I'll, I'll, I'll take it from there as a teaching pro, because I think those of us, and I think you were just starting to touch on that point, Steve, those of us, I think you have to divide Americans into two categories and those that really follow tennis 
religiously the way we do and, and, and really have a, a, a high value on the way players conduct themselves. Cause for myself, when I have a group of 30 kids come to the courts on a Monday after watching a slam final on a Sunday, they are going to behave based on the winner of that tournament's behavior on a Sunday. So if they saw McEnroe going crazy, you got a bunch of kids going crazy. If you got Agassiz hitting every ball as hard as he possibly can, you got a bunch of kids coming out and hitting the ball as hard as they possibly can. So overall, with regard to Pete, I would say when I went to that Davis Cup final in 92 and sat there in the stands and watched Pete Sampras, John McEnroe, Andre Agassi and Jim Courier take on Mark Rosé and Jakob Lasek in that final. I was a fan of American tennis, and I thought that Pete represented American tennis very well at that point in time. There was behaviors from McEnroe that I didn't care for, but his tennis was so brilliant that you couldn't help but marvel at it and root for it. And, and Connor's intensity and determination and the way he just took the crowd in New York and put it in the palm of his hand and just spun him around like a yo-yo was also very cool to watch. But to your point, Matt, you didn't want to see him saying the kinds of vulgar things to umpires that he said. So it was kind of a love-hate relationship with American tennis. In Pete's case, maybe the worst thing that you could say about him, we talked about it a little bit earlier in the show, is that he didn't have that charisma that you wanted him to have that Andre had and that some of these other guys had. But as you said, Matt's a couple of times, and I think Johnny, you mentioned it as well, guys racket did the talking and that was all there was to it. And I would just add with regard to Sampras, I mean, me personally, I, I just love seeing him win. I became a huge fan of Sampras and, and he was very refreshing coming, you know, after McEnroe Connors, the sportsmanship was incredible. I think the athleticism, that he had is maybe bar none one of the best in the history of the game. The athleticism was incredible. Some of those, you know, scissor kick overheads that he would hit were, were amazing. And then to see him have the victories he had and then chase that Roy Emerson slam title, not title, but, but record. The count. Uh, yeah. The count to get to, to, to 14. I just kept rooting for him because I, I, I really wanted to see an American do that. So I was a huge fan, and I think that, uh, yeah, while he didn't maybe have the charisma, he sure had the athleticism, he sure had the sportsmanship, and he sure had the game. So it was just really a fun time, and I was a huge fan of Sampras, and um, just what a class act. Yeah, I think you summed it up well, Johnny. And I would just add to that, Andy, that he had quiet charisma. I mean, Arthur Ashe had a very explosive game. He never emoted. He was quite a bit like Pete on the court. You didn't see it. There was, there was nothing explosive about his temperament. Arthur comported himself you know, with great dignity the way Pete did, but people were drawn to him by his game. And I think in a sense that was true of Pete too. The, he, he, was such, he was great to watch because of the, the elegance, not just the athleticism, but the elegance and the, the beauty of his game. I think that, and let's face it, is Roger really that demonstrative? But I think some people would say that Roger is, is also charismatic in his own way. Not to be a devil's advocate, but I'll be a devil's advocate. I asked Andre Agassi this question live in September when I saw him uh, at, the, uh, at the World Conference in Las Vegas. And I said, looking back on it now, would your career have been the same without Pete Sampras? Is it pretty clear to you at this point that you guys brought out the best in each other and have you guys gotten to the point at almost 50 years of age now that you realize how badly you both needed each other in your careers you know, he spoke with a lot with a lot of respect for Andre and how, how he felt that he had to be at the top of his game and he, how much he enjoyed playing him in those major finals and obviously they were linked together throughout their careers it was the, it was the so-called greatest generation of Sampras Agassi Courier, Chang, and then even a little Todd Martin and Mal Washington mixed in. But the fact is that that was the rivalry. It's ama- it reminds me of Rafter saying, uh, he said, I wouldn't call what I, my series with Pete a rivalry. The, the rivalry was Pete versus Andre. So, but the bottom line is Sampras won four of their five major finals. He lost one Australian, but beat him three times in the Open finals and once in the Wimbledon final. And that was really the essential difference in the rivalry is that he won the biggest matches. The book is Pete Sampras greatness revisited. It's author Steve Flink has been our featured guest tonight on kickserveradio.com for Pete's sake. 
and get that book. Uh, I'm sure it's on Amazon. Where where can everybody get it, Pete or uh, Steve? Yeah, that's right. They can get it on Amazon. Certain bookstores will carry it as well, but I would say Amazon's the easiest starting point, Andy. Great stuff, guys. He's Matt Vlander, seven-time Grand Slam champion, former number one in the world. Johnny Levine, two-time All-American as a University of Texas Longhorn. Steve Flink, author of The Greatest Tennis Matches of All Time, and now the author of Pete Sampras, Greatness Revisited. I'm Andy Zoden, director of tennis at Columbine Country Club in Denver, Colorado. Thank you guys so much for listening to For Pete's Sake on kickserveradio.com. We appreciate it, and we'll be back with you real soon. Mm-hmm.